Welcome to Season 4 of American Political History, 1676, Virginia Outsiders. Most of the native nations bordering Virginia were refugees of either the Powhatan Wars or the intrusion of the Iroquois Nation of Five. The Susquehannocks, meaning people of the falls, had a few generations ago been forced to move from the Erie, Ohio Valley area after years of war with the Seneca. Even after they'd accepted the offer from Maryland to move into the border region, the Seneca still would attack them. The Seneca's expectation of the English and Dutch alike was full cooperation with them in suppressing those that they considered a part of their sphere of influence. Anyone opposing them would face their war parties. They had forced the Susquehannocks from their lands and expected the Susquehannocks to be their tributary no matter where they went to. The Susquehannocks got some protection when they went into Maryland, distance being the biggest. But they found themselves in a bind. They were culturally Iroquois, yet living among and around Algonquian nations. They had been invited to live within the edges of the Maryland plantation, but they were seen as invaders by the Algonquian nations around them. They were exiles from their cultural peoples, and they had found friendship with Virginia and Maryland for decades. This had sheltered them from their enemies, new and old. Being friends of the English warded off some of their problems around them. But this relationship with the English had allowed the Susquehannock to never reconcile their issues with the other native nations, meaning when the friendship with the English soured, they had no other friends, only people looking to take advantage of their misfortune. Cultural interchange had been challenging for generations in the New World. Each side expected acceptance of their culture. They took offense at the breaking of cultural norms. But the English had an additional duality of demands on the natives around them. The elites, like Barclay, wanted native integration into their culture, expecting integration, alliance, and peace. While the plantation fringes, like Bacon, wanted to utilize unused lands, retribution for their losses to Indian attacks, and projection of power over natives to ensure peace. Another factor that made it exceptionally hard for the natives around Virginia was interpreting Virginian culture, which was very different than European cultural norms. The assembly of people within Virginia was quite eclectic. The natives and the aristocrats of Europe settled differences and conflict with marriages and long-term cultural exchange, and the binding that goes along with that, even if the cultures aren't the same. Of course, when this type of interchange didn't work out, it often led to wars, and that was both true for Europe or native nations. But here is an example of the weird, eclectic mix of Virginia I'm talking about. Barclay set up a program to have some planters adopt native children so they could be raised to understand English culture, an idea of cultural interchange. Planters just saw this as cheap layer in lieu of utilizing their own children, while the most atrocious saw this as slaves for permanent labor or for cheap income of their sale. Policies earnestly meant to promote interchange in Virginia quickly turned into policies that fomented bitter, bitter feelings. 
nativists found little avenue for cultural interchange with the English. And where they found it, it was ripe with the predators that preyed on the poor English. Laws had been passed by Berkeley to preserve and protect reserved area for friendly natives. These buffer areas is what he called them. Those laws stopped English settlement in those native lands by pain of death. But the laws didn't stop the willing surrender of those lands by natives, a loophole that would be exploited. English traders would offer credit to natives for small trifling items, but this debt would not be paid off and it would accumulate into much larger debts, which English courts would demand settlement for. And because the natives lacked hard assets like money or investments, the only thing they could be paid off with was their lands. In 1660, when the sachem of the Winokis accumulated so much debt his creditors could claim much of his territory, he threatened war. The Virginia Assembly responded with legislation that any loans to natives was at the creditors' risk and the colony courts would no longer hear any claims. Then the Assembly took the sweeping authority to themselves authorize Indian traders, so they could appoint men of known integrity for this task. The assembly would emphasize their decision by stating, The mutual discontents, complaints, jealousies, and fears of the English and Indian proceed chiefly from the violent intrusion of diverse English made into their lands, forcing the Indians by way of revenge to kill all the cattle and hogs of the English. Although this defense of native rights by a Virginia assembly may have seemed like a positive step at the time, there was a shift in the general mood of the common Englishman. That this was more evidence that there was little to no hope of converting the Indian culture to the righteous and Christian English culture. A sentiment that would grow to change the relational paradigm between the English and natives in the New World. The English would start to change their view of natives, from a lost tribe of Israel to be saved with Christianity, to pieces on a chessboard to be used, manipulated, and thrown out as it served the interests of the English. By 1644, Maryland, who had originally invited the Susquehannocks into their territory, was looking to form a new, more advantageous peace treaty with the Seneca. The English territorial advance had pushed the Susquehannocks into the Virginia and Maryland hinterlands. In the last decade, the English had taken control of the lands around all five major rivers. By doing so, they had taken the best lands, but more importantly, they took the lands that produced the staple items that the Susquehannock culture relied on for survival. These nations and these hinterland border were already in decline before the battles on the Virginia frontier of 1676. It was a question of avoiding cultural extinction for another generation that was in front of the Susquehannock. How should they handle this attack on their cabins? In their culture, the spirits of men slain must have an answer. Normally, this would be done through war by taking slaves or ceremonial adoption of prisoners into the nation so their spirits could be ceremoniously excised from their bodies. This sounds odd and foreign to us today that you would kill one person to cosmically weigh your society. But the idea they had was by offsetting the lost life of their nation, they offset the spiritual off within their nation. By letting someone die without spiritual replacement, their nation was diminished in spiritual strength that could not be brought back. 
So who could the Susquehannock attack to find this spiritual exchange? If they attacked Maryland, they would once again be driven off their lands into exile. They were living in Maryland on the lands which had been acquired through peaceful relations. If they attacked Virginia, they risk war. Virginia was powerful and might even be able to turn Maryland to their side in this war. So should they attack an Algonquian nation nearby? If they did that, they risk a unified war against many Algonquian nations which might ally themselves together against this outside Iroquois Sesquahannock nation attacking them. Many of the local Algonquian nations had always resented the Susquehannock's very existence in that territory. They also resented the fact that the Susquehannocks had gotten and received the most favorable treatment by the English for decades. The sachem of the Susquehannock could choose to do nothing, but in any culture, politically driving a path directly against popular cultural norms is a certain way to be replaced as a ruler with a knife or a vote. The Susquehannock sachem chose to launch counterattacks on the nearby Virginian plantations that were responsible for attacking those in the cabin. When they did, they lost two dozen warriors while killing only two Virginians, a poor spiritual omen of their future. When the opportunity of this war opened up, Pasaclay, Powhatan of the Okanoches, who had always been wary of the Susquehannocks moving into his territory. After all, it had been one thing for the Susquehannocks to come and trade occasionally in his lands. It was another to build fortifications and live there without his permission. Sachem Pasaclay offered to help the English with their problem by having his men attack the retreating, weakened Susquehannocks. A fateful decision for his nation as a cultural dispute with Bacon's forces on how war plunder should be allocated, would destroy the Okanochee nation. In Maryland, during the first part of the rebellion, Lord Colvert was becoming the new Lord Baltimore in England. His travels to England for this formality meant that he had returned after Bacon had been declared a rebel. Lord Baltimore was out of touch with the opinions of the Marylanders which he ruled over so he convened a court at St. Mary's. Many of Maryland's oldest friendly native nations were at that court to see if their alliances would hold up, or be discarded like it happened in Virginia. The first order of business at this court was to impeach Truman, who had commanded the Maryland militia at the Susquehannock's fort, where he had ordered the killings of the Susquehannock messengers after accepting them under the banner of parley. The upper house was to review the case and send it to the lower house if they felt there was evidence enough for conviction. The lower house of Maryland was not particularly interested in this trial and instead spent their time passing legislation to stop trade of weapons to all Indians, including friendly ones and allies alike. The Maryland lower house was in line with the Baconites of Virginia, who saw that all Indians were one and the same, treacherous and cruel. They had called for the total control of friendly nations on reservations, or the ejection of all Indians from the colony's territory. The upper house rejected this and sent a warning to the lower house. This would force the friend Indians to join our enemies in war. The upper house handed the conviction of Truman down to the lower house. 
the lower house decided to only levy this blatant murder with fines for his behavior, saying he was forced into action by the peer pressure of a thousand militiamen. They excused his actions by saying he had not acted with malicious intent, but out of necessity to prevent mutiny of his own men. Lord Baltimore himself was livid at this, saying publicly that murder was murder. If the lower house was correct in the sentencing, then why was it that his first commands to murder these Indians under parley was not obeyed by the supposedly mutinous militiamen? And why was it that he had great difficulty to get anyone within the militia to obey these orders to kill these Indians? But with Maryland's recent history, having their own civil war just half a generation ago, Lord Baltimore chose not to override the lower house's ruling on Truman, but he did say to them that their action would be met with the deaths of Englishmen because this legislation is a great injustice. Then he politically distanced himself from all of this by saying, That which is undone here today lays with them, the lower house, not with us. The natives in the audience watching this injustice be prosecuted were not friends of the Susquehannocks, but they were very worried of the attitudes displayed by the lower house. They seemed all too willing to suspend the ordinary rules of war and diplomacy when Indians were involved. Indifference to how their actions would be perceived by their Indian allies. They seemed all too much like the Virginians rallying to Bacon's cause, looking for war with any and all Indians who have ever stepped out of line in any sort of way. Bacon's revolt of 1676 is too often just portrayed as a showdown between Bacon and Barclay, focusing on who will win control of Virginian politics. But the longest-lasting byproduct was to change the English colonists' view of how to handle native nations from a web of alliances for mutual protection and economic trade. The sentiment was now commonly voiced in public that Indians are a people in wait to betray the English as they have shown themselves to do so many times. No matter which tack the native sachems now took, their fate, if reliant on the English, would be reservations or war. Kankoka Whiskeyway, the hereditary sachem of the Pamunkey, testified in Jamestown of her nation's loyalty and willingness to hand over their weapons to the English. It made little difference to the nation's eventual outcome. The Rappahannocks would fight back against the English forts that had pushed them off their lands. It would make little difference in their eventual outcome. Frontiersmen started answering trespass on their lands with a gun before words. This type of hostile action was given a nod of consent by the English courts, opening the door for the less scrupulous to simply shoot natives, because the English law only required no more than a planter's unsupported oath to claim trespassing. Bacon's rebellion moved the political paradigm of Indian relations to a place that spelled disaster for all nations unable to defend themselves and trapped between the rising power of the English colonies and the Iroquois Nation of Five. Thank you for listening to this episode of American Political History. If you want to support the show, please subscribe and leave a five-star rating. 
and share this show with someone you think would enjoy listening. Thank you again, and until next time.